From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, part two of our three-part series on IOL calculation after keratorefractive surgery. So all we're doing in our situation, most of the time we're seeing these patients post-LASIK, and now they want their cataract out. So in theory, the proper IOL is that IOL that makes them their preoperative manifest refraction. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Keith Walter declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Last week, we heard from Sam Maskett, who presented an empiric regression formula for IOL calculation after LASIK. Today, Keith Walter shows us a clever approach which employs pre-LASIK data and ignores the post-LASIK cornea. But first, some background. The best methods for IOL calculation after ablative refractive surgery all rely on pre-LASIK data. Perhaps the most obvious method is what has been termed the clinical history method. It works like this. If we know what the pre-LASIK keratometries were, and we know what the achieved refractive correction was, we can calculate the effective post-LASIK K. To do this, we vertex-correct the achieved refractive result and add it to the preoperative average K. Let's say a patient had an average pre-LASIK K of 45 and an achieved refractive correction of minus 5 diopters. First, we correct the minus 5 for the corneal plane. I get 4.7 diopters. And then we add this to the patient's pre-LASIK average K. So if the pre-LASIK average K was 45, the post-LASIK K is 45 minus 4.7 or 40.3. Mind you, if we were actually to measure keratometry after LASIK, we would get a substantially higher and completely erroneous value. The clinical history method makes a great deal of sense. Unfortunately, it doesn't work as well as first examination might suggest. The method still tends to leave patients hyperopic. The clinical history method goes amiss with one important premise. This is the assumption that for a given axial length in keratometry, there is no difference between an eye that is natively emetropic and an eye that has been made emetropic surgically. The premise is faulty because the anterior chamber depth of an eye with a natively 38 diopter cornea is a good deal different from an eye with a natively 45 diopter cornea that has been flattened by LASIK to 38 diopters. Therefore, Although the calculated keratometry gets the refractive power of the cornea right, it misses its prediction of the IOL position in the eye. We could remedy this, as Jamie Aramberry suggested, by using our calculated K for the refractive portion of the IOL calculation and using the pre-LASIK K for the anterior chamber depth portion of the IOL calculation. This is called the double K method, and it does yield better results than the clinical history method. Its obvious downside is that it is a cumbersome calculation. There are purely topographic methods. The EFFRP adjusted method is based on a proprietary topographic parameter. Certainly, some sort of topographic parameter can be employed in cases in which no historical data are available. Another approach in patients who have no obtainable medical records is the hard contact lens method. Imagine this. What would happen if we were to put a plano hard contact lens on an eye that has undergone LASIK? The tear lens that would form beneath the contact lens would conform to the laser ablation. In this case, the back curve of the lens can be treated as if it were the pre-LASIK K, 
and the refractive difference between the manifest refraction with a contact on and with a contact off can be treated as if it were the refractive result achieved with LASIK. We can then apply an existing IOL calculation method. Although this technique is sound, the results obtained have been less than perfect. Today, my guest is Keith Walter. He'll introduce us to a method of IOL calculation that takes into account both the change induced by keratorefractive surgery and the lack of concomitant change in anterior chamber depth, and does it all in a manner that is easily calculated in the office. Keith, can I have you describe your method for intraocular lens calculation after LASIK? My method just deals with the fact that philosophically you can figure out the lens, the proper lens power without actually knowing current corneal power. And so it's sort of a blend of a historical method, but also kind of using just some common sense to sort of figure out what the true IOL power is. So so my method is sort of, I think, appropriately termed the corneal bypass method. So basically, it's, it's bypassing the current corneal power that the patient comes in with, because we know that that's inaccurate. And what you can kind of do is use the patient's history plus a couple other twists to derive the true IOL power. So anyway, it, it started, oh gosh, probably back in my residency at Emory, and this is 10 or 12 years ago, when we were talking about you know how to do the best job at calculating IOLs in RK patients. And we knew that RK patients at the time had some pretty wild K readings and they weren't very reliable and you had a lot of central flattening and it was very difficult to get an accurate IOL calculation. So I think back then we had thought about it, uh, myself and a few of my other colleagues, but when we tried it with RK patients, it didn't really work all that well. And I think that's because the RK patients are just so variable, not only in their keratometry readings and their Ks, but also in their stability. So they had a lot of diurnal fluctuations and post-op regression, positive regression or, or hyperopic sort of progression, I guess we should say. And so it made it very difficult to get an accurate. And I think other people had kind of thought about it because lately somebody had pointed out to me that even the board books had pointed had pointed out this method as a sort of a theoretic method, but nobody had ever really tested it. And then so kind of zip ahead 10 years doing a lot of LASIK and seeing a lot of patients post-LASIK all of a sudden get cataracts, it came to me that I thought that this method might work. And the, the philosophy is that in, in, in our paper we described this, if you had an artist that came in and wanted to be myopic for some reason, like he wanted to see his easel and his painting it at several feet away, two or three feet away, and he wanted to be about a minus three diopter myope post, cataract surgery, you would simply calculate his intraocular lens power based on his desire or target of a minus three diopter lens. And then later on, let's say everything went well with his cataract surgery and ended up exactly minus three diopters. Later on, you, he decided he didn't want to be a minus three myope. He wanted to have LASIK done, or PRK for that matter, to see distance. And then you'd go and correct his three diopters of myopia and he would be happy. But in that situation, that's, that patient would have an altered cornea and an IOL in his eye and be able to see 20-20 or NB emetropic. 
So all we're doing in our situation, most of the time we're seeing these patients post-LASIK, and now they want their cataract out. So in theory, the proper IOL is that IOL that makes them their preoperative manifest refraction. There's a couple little nuances to the to the method or to the formula just that you have to be aware of, and we can describe those later. But but basically, if you have somebody who comes in who was a minus three myope, and they had LASIK done and corrected that minus three myope, and now and they were 20/20 in emetropic, and now they develop a cataract, then the true IOL power is that lens power that would have made them a minus three to begin with. With their pre-LASIK keratometries. Yeah, with their pre-LASIK keratometry, right. So you do have to know a little bit of history with my method, and that is one of the downsides to it, is you do have to know their preoperative corneal power and what they were preoperatively manifest refraction, spherical equivalent, and also what the net effect was of all their combined procedures. So if they had two enhancements after the original LASIK, you kind of want to know where they ended up. So it's actually the net spherical equivalent change that you're after. But if you know that history, and most of the time if it's your own patients, you'll probably know that history. Um, sometimes patients move around and you can't locate their previous doctor or maybe they went to a LASIK chain and uh, they've closed their doors and they don't have their records. So sometimes you're stuck with uh, not being able to use this method. But it, like you were saying, it makes the most sense to me with this method that it should work. And indeed it does work. In our paper. Walk me through lens calculation in a hypothetical patient. Okay. We can start off with the most, you know, sort of simplest situation. And let's say somebody comes in who has a cataract and they were they were they had LASIK, let's say five years ago, and they tell you they were twenty twenty after LASIK, they loved it, everything went great, and they knew they were real nearsighted. Uh, beforehand, and it totally took care of their vision. They could see a golf ball at 250 yards. They were very happy with it. But then their vision slowly deteriorated, and lo and behold, they ended up with a cataract. And now they're 2050, and they're ready for cataract surgery. And you, you know, you see typical nuclear sclerosis, and you're ready to sign them up. So what I'll ask the patient then is, you know, where did they have their LASIK done, and uh, and if they have any old records. And in most cases, we've been able to find those old records. One of the patients in our series was a lady who had had their LASIK done up in Washington, D.C. and uh, at, a, at a TLC center, and it was very easy to locate their records. And in, let's say in this example, they were a minus nine preoperatively spherical. Well, let's say their exact friction or exact prescription was a minus ten plus two. So their spherical equivalent would be a minus nine. And let's say you look through the records and you find out that they were Plano afterwards. So they have a net change of a minus 9. And you look at their Ks pre-LASIK, and their pre-LASIK Ks were average of 45. So you can put this not only to the, the holiday formula, but really any IOL formula. If you know their preoperative Ks, you plug that in. You know what their net change was. They were a minus nine. So you target. That's the trickiest part and the hardest part for people to understand is that you have to target the patient to a minus nine in your IOL calculation formula. So you put in minus nine for your target. You put in the case of average of 45. 
and do the do the current axial length. There's a small error. Of course, the cornea is thinner, so theoretically their axial length will be a little bit less. But we're talking, you know, a tenth of a millimeter maybe at most if you take off 100 microns. So it's not that much of an error. So you can take their current axial length, plug that into the formula, and out comes your IOL selection. Now, just so that I can clarify things, when you're aiming for minus 9, I want to be perfectly clear, it's minus 9 at the spectacle plane. It's not corrected for the cornea. And it's the minus 9 that you're plugging into the lens calculation formulas because, again, with the lens calculation formulas, when you're plugging in the refractive um, uh, error that you're shooting for, that's an error that's at the spectacle plane. So none of this stuff is um, is corrected for the for the cornea. And again, it's the, it's the pre-LASIK case. So let let me have you describe the design of this study. Well, the way we designed it was basically we had thought about this, and I had been doing this on some patients, select patients previously, and then we thought, you know what? Let's actually do a series of patients and report it because they seem to be coming out pretty well. And then we'll compare our method with a couple of the other most popular methods that are out there. So, of course, you could do the the wrong thing. You can just use their post-LASIK keratometry method. So, basically, that's kind of a silly way to compare it to. But, you know, of course, we know that if we use their current Ks, that those Ks are not accurate. <clears throat> and so you can measure their Ks and then, in theory and then measure their axial length, and then just put them at targeted Plano. Just say you didn't even know they had LASIK and see what you come up with for an IOL. Then you can use the clinical history method where you actually do a subtraction. Uh, so this is the true clinical history method where you use the post-LASIK axial length, calculate the corneal power, and then enter that into the positive format. So you have to do some subtraction there and then see what, what comes out. Then you can use the double K method that... Coach and Wang, uh, Wang described, and that's a little bit more complicated to go through. And then you can use our method. You could also use the contact lens method, but um, we had not had much luck with that in the past, and it's also very difficult to do, and we hadn't done that on any of our patients. So, you know, halfway through the study, we thought about it, but we really didn't want to get too complicated. So the design of the study was to sort of compare our method in a practical manner, which nobody had done, actually use it on patients with, in theory, the other methods that were out there at the time, which were the most popular methods, and then just sort of see how the results did compared. And then, of course, afterwards, you can kind of see, you know, what the true IOL should have been because you know what you got, and then you can kind of go back and say, well, actually, they're, you know, a minus one. We probably should have uh, not had that strong of an IOL and there, maybe backed it off you know, you can figure it out about two-thirds of the way, and you can actually come up with what the true IOL. So you could use our method or any of the methods and compare it to the final result and see what the uh, the true IOL power should have been. You know, I think in the nine eyes that we did, we did very well. And I guess the other thing I wanted to back up and to talk about, too, was maybe another case example. If you have somebody that's let's say, had, and I get this question a lot since this paper's come out, let's say they've had several enhancements. Let's say they ended up, they were minus 9, like our first example, spherical equivalent, but postoperatively they came out a minus 2, okay? And then they had an enhancement for that minus 2, and then that got them to Plano. That still doesn't matter. The net, it's still the net change. So if you, if you keep changing the cornea, 
over time, over several, let's say, different occasions, it's still the net. Whatever they still ended up with is what you want to do. Let's say, for example, you have a patient that wanted to be a minus 2 instead of a minus 9 for monovision, so that eye was left minus 2 on purpose. Then in this method, the coronal bypass method, you want to use a net change of minus 7, so minus 9, the difference between minus 9 and minus 7, the net change. I mean, minus 9 and minus 2, the net change to the minus 7. The other thing, too, the opposite is true. If they ended up hyperopic, let's say they went from minus 9 to plus 1, then the net change is minus 10 total. So it's got to go back to your integers, you remember, from probably third grade uh, and figure that one out. But it's the net power that's changed. If they ever left a a plus one afterwards for some reason and didn't have any more surgery and then uh, later on got a cataract, then they need to you need to do the net change. The other thing too is we've had this happen a couple times where patients were referred in and when you look through the records, they already had a little nuclear sclerosis at the time of their LASIK. So let's say this is a patient at 65, somebody out there does LASIK on them for a minus five and they were noted to have a minor, or a, um, a two-plus nuclear sclerotic cataract. Well, of course, later on in a year or two, that cataract accelerates, and so they maybe initially got a good result, but then ended up now a minus two again. That That's a problem, because some of that nuclear sclerosis could have been causing their minus five. In other words, they could have been really a minus three, but then with the advent of their nuclear sclerosis, they're now two diopters more myopic. They got a myopic shift. So that's the only problem that we've had with the studies. It's a little bit unpredictable if they've already had a cataract developing. But So that, that's the other thing to kind of be aware of with this method. Now, your method worked very well with a mean postoperative spherical equivalent of plus 0.03 plus or minus 0.42. How did your method compare with the other methods that you mentioned? Well, our, our method ended up doing the best. What we're really proud of is that tight standard deviation just like in any uh, refractive-type procedure, if you're evaluating a new refractive procedure, let's say when LASIK came out, what was so good about LASIK was that real tight standard deviation. So, you know, if your average is zero, that's one thing. But if you're plus or minus one or plus or minus two diopters, that doesn't say much. I mean, you could be getting just as many overcorrections as you are undercorrections. They're sort of canceling each other out, so your average is zero. So we were proud that our... Our um, standard deviation was the smallest out of the out of the other groups in the comparison groups. So, and I'd have to look them up exactly to remember what they were. Now, I think that your method is particularly clever, and I want to tell you why. It, it, it's because a plano post LASIK eye is not like a natively plano eye. It's it's more similar to the myopic eye that it was prior to LASIK, except that it has a flat central K. And when you compare your method to things like the clinical history method, which in essence calculates the intraocular lens power as if the eye really were Plano, uh, I I, th- I think that that methods like that, like the clinical history method, ignore significant things like anterior chamber depth, which is different in an eye that is myopic from an eye that is plano, even if the uh, axial length of, of the two eyes are the, are the same. 
there there are formulas that account for anterior chamber depth, things like the double K formula. Uh, but I think that that yours is is particularly clever because it 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 inherently takes into account that an eye that was myopic that has had LASIK is still constructed like a myopic eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the problem with the clinical history method is that you're calculating the Ks and you're you're assuming that for every diopter of correction you're getting a one diopter change in their cornea. But I don't think that's necessarily true. And that's the problem with the um clinical history method and hence that's why they went with the double K method was they were trying to to determine this uh axial Ks versus the uh, corneal case to try to figure out if that made a difference, to try to come up with the same thing. If you look at our method compared to the clinical history method, the clinical history method every time, except for maybe once, I think, you know, pretty much every time, it undercorrected the patient, so they were left a little hyperopic. So it, it, it gave you a underpowered IOL, and most of the time it was by a diopter or two. So... If you use the clinical history method, which sounds like it should work, you'll end up having about a plus one or plus two diopter hyperope afterwards, and nobody likes to be hyperopic after their surgery. With our method, they're either right on target or sometimes they're even slightly myopic, which um, which is more favorable. And in fact, what I've done now is if I don't have any history at all, and we are getting a pentacam, by the way, so hopefully that will help us with this, Sometimes what I'll do is I'll go ahead and calculate their current with their current case, and you know I know they're wrong, put in the target of Plano and get the axial length and see what the IOL power is, and then you know that that's wrong. You know that it's probably about two or three diopters shy of what it should be, and so you can add two or three diopters to it and get a kind of a guesstimate of where it should be. It's not very good, not very scientific, but at least they're not hyperopic. They'll be probably pretty close. I think on our average, it was about two diopters or 1.8 diopters more than the clinical history method or just doing the straight-up method, post-LASIK day method. Your method worked well with the holiday formula. Do you think that these findings were specific to the holiday formula, or would any theoretical formula have worked as well? I, I ask this because each formula has built-in assumptions, whether explicitly stated, like anterior chamber depth, or implicit, like the relationship of the nodal point to the back of the intraocular lens. And I wonder whether the assumptions of the holiday formula just jive better with your algorithm. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do have a couple of thoughts about that. Well, one is, in theory, if you just think about the like the cleverness of this method, like you were saying, I think that it should work with any any method because just theoretically, it should work with whatever method you choose. I asked, actually, Jack Holliday about that uh, in a personal conversation and, and introduced at uh, Asterisk meeting our method, uh, and Sam Maskett was there and several others. And um, at first, he had a good explanation for why it worked, why our method worked, and then he, it kind of baffled him a little bit, and then he had to sit back and think. We had several emails back and forth, and I still, I, I still think he's searching for why it works. And I think at first he was thinking what you're thinking. Well, it must be because... His holiday formula has those assumptions, and, and things are sort of just canceling out, and that's why it's working out. And when he really started thinking about it, it that doesn't seem to be true. So I, I, we'd have to ask him again. I was hoping that he'll probably write a um, – because he wanted to write a um, letter to the editor responding to my paper. So hopefully he'll 
who come and uh, enlighten us all on this and to, to see. But I've tried it with other, like SRK2 formulas and other just, you know, just plugging it in and it, and it seems to work since the paper came out. I've done several more cases and it seems to work with, with any method. Seems to give you similar numbers. Yeah, it seems to work fine. Your formula, like many of the formulae that, that work, is predicated on a knowledge of pre-LASIK data. Now, these data aren't always available clinically. I'm sure that you feel the same way that, that I do, that patients should have their preoperative data and, and what was achieved during LASIK tattooed on their, their body somewhere. Yes, or an implantable chip or something like that. An implantable chip, much more elegant. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you do? I, now, now, I know that you mentioned this method of fudging by adding three diopters, but what do you do in your own practice when someone comes in with no pre-LASIK data? Yeah. One thing that you could do is ask to see an old pair of, of glasses. You still don't know the case, though. You still don't know your case, though. That's the one problem. They can show up with old glasses or old prescriptions. But what do you do when someone comes in with absolutely no clinical data? Um, we've gotten lucky a couple times where the optometrist has pulled us through, where they've gotten an old contact lens fitting, and so there was a K keratometry reading and, a, and an old prescription and, uh, and used that. So that helped us. So, you know, the, the ophthalmologist didn't have any record of it, but somebody who's maybe worn contacts and been fitted, they actually measured their case, and we've actually done okay with that. That only had that one case where it absolutely had no clue what the what the history was. There was a TLC center, I think, or a LASIK Plus center that had closed, and there was no records of anything, and they had no clue what they were. And um, and that's where I had to fudge. But I think the, the way to go would be the Pentacam. We, we've just got one on order now, so... Talking to Jack Holiday about that, he's you know pretty confident that that's going to help a lot of people without any history. So I think that would be the way to go at that point. Now let me ask this, although you, you've you've already sort of answered it, what do you do in your own practice now when someone comes in who has had LASIK or PRK and needs cataract surgery? Do do you use the method we've been talking about here? Oh yeah, every time. Every time since then, I bet we've done another probably 20 or 30 cases. Myself personally, and then probably we have our practice have done a few more because all my partners are doing this method now too. And then I know there's a high-volume cataract surgeon in in Charlotte, which is only an hour away, Jonathan Christenberry, and he's using this method and have found it to be very helpful. And so we were going to collaborate. We haven't gotten the time yet, but we were going to collaborate and publish a large series of patients because you can you can go back and back test. You know, you can go back to all these patients and look at their records and see what implant they got in. Use our use our method and see what we would have put in and see how well it matches up and how well everything did. So that's one thing that's nice about this is you can take this method go back through your patient's charts and see how it would have done compared to what you did. And I think you'll be pleased. We've gotten several doctors, including Dr. Christenberry, reported to us that say that that was a very helpful thing, that it did help them. The only thing I'll tell you about this is it doesn't seem to apply very well to hyperopic LASIK patients. So if they were, if they were hyperopic before their LASIK surgery, and and you do this method on, they tend to be a little bit too myopic. I mean, they, they don't come out like minus eight, but they'll come out like a minus one or a minus two. So you're you're skewed a little bit 
which isn't a bad thing because they like being my, myopic. But I've had to correct one patient with additional laser to get them back to Plano because they didn't like their myopia. But And I think that might be because um, their cornea is not altered centrally. It's just altered peripherally. So what I'm doing now is testing. There's just not enough of them. But I'd like to test, you know, just straight up measure the Ks and their current axial length versus our method versus these other methods in a hyperopic series of patients and just see which one's best. My, th- my, my early feeling on it is just measure straight up and use them that way, and they do fine. So you don't have to do any kind of method for the previous hyperopic LASIK patients. But there's just not a lot of them around. Keith, is there anything that you'd like to add? The one thing that you kind of alluded to already uh, is I do think that when you have LASIK patients, we probably should come up with some sort of either, you know, national or international database where we can log on and, and, and look at all these patients that have had LASIK and see what their pre-Ks are. Because if it does end up being the best method, then we kind of want to know that. I mean, maybe the Pentacam will pan out and we won't, it won't make any difference. But um, it's always nice to have another method to check it and to balance everything out. So, I mean, I, I've thought about this. You know, either tell patients about it, give them a little card that they can carry around. Of course, they'll lose it or, you know, somehow, you know, I don't know, log it onto a website. I don't know. I don't know how to – I mean, I personally had LASIK, so I know my pre-op case and what I was beforehand. So <laughs> I've got it memorized. So I'll tell my surgeon for sure, this is what I was. Here's what you want to do. <laughs> Keith Walter, thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Keith Walter is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. His paper, Accurate Intraocular Lens Power Calculation After Myopic Laser In-Situ Keratomyelusis Bypassing Corneal Power, appears in the March 2006 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Walter or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.